This is a Vault Studios production. I'm Reed Redmond. I'm Will Johnson. The show contains graphic material and is meant for mature audiences. This week on True Crime Chronicles. And when he completed his work that night, he pretty much indicated that he thought there were some problems. They told her, look, this didn't happen. We have proof this didn't happen. You need to tell us what really happened now. It's hard to believe it's been 25 years. And I think the the overwhelming feeling for us in the newsroom is it was such a horrible crime. It just seems like it happened yesterday. Just over 27 years ago, on the evening of October 25th, 1994, a man in Union County, South Carolina, called 911 to report a carjacking after a woman showed up at his house, pounding on the door out of breath and sobbing. She said a man had forced her out of her car at gunpoint, then got in and drove off with her two young children in the back. Now that night, she told police that a black man carjacked her and her vehicle with her sons still inside. The woman's name was Susan Smith. I have been here since December of 1990, and I've been anchoring the evening news for the past 20 years. J.R. Barry remembers covering the case for WLTX in Columbia, South Carolina. According to her story, the evening of October 25th, 1994, she drove up to a traffic light, basically a four-way intersection in Union County. She said at that time when the light turned red, she stopped, and that a black man appeared out of nowhere, opened up her car door, forced her out, told her to uh, he was going to take the car, and he drove away with the two children inside. That same night, the South Carolina Law Enforcement Division, or SLED, would get involved. An all-out search started that night into the next day, uh, trying to find the vehicle, trying to find any signs of the children. J.R. Barry was at the station when SLED first called to tell them about the reported abduction. I was in the newsroom that night, uh, I believe it was a Tuesday night, when SLED called with the information about the report. Hugh Munn was the SLED spokesman, and when he told me the story that the woman had said she had uh, been hijacked by a black man who drove away with her two kids inside, I'm like, Hugh, you don't expect me to put that on TV, do you? Nobody around here is going to believe that. But he said, well, we're only relaying the story that she has given us, that uh, this is what happened to her, and, and we're investigating. Uh, So we went ahead, we put the story out on the air, and as you know, it went nationwide in the matter of a couple of days. And the next thing you know, Susan Smith and and her ex-husband, David Smith, they're appearing on all the national broadcasts over the next several days in an effort that she knew was going to be a failed effort to find her children alive. As more and more people around South Carolina and around the country heard Susan Smith's story, J.R. Barry wasn't the only one who was skeptical. Well, not only was I suspicious, but law enforcement later said that they didn't believe her story either, that uh, that was the story she was telling. I mean, you know, you're in the middle of the, of the, of the night in South Carolina. You're at a uh, traffic light. You're supposedly forced to get out of your car by a man. Uh, who drove away with your kids, that that just doesn't seem right 
And it didn't sound right to me that night. As a parent, it didn't sound right to me. I'm, I'm thinking, well, look, uh, if I'm at a traffic light and somebody is trying to force me out, they're going to have to kill me to take my kids away. So it wasn't just me. I'm not the only one who had doubts. There were other medias, uh, members of the media who had doubts as well. And as we learned later, law enforcement had doubts. Former SLED chief Bob Stewart confirmed as much in a later interview with WLTX. The first night when the sheriff called and asked for assistance, uh, we sent a team over, and one of the first agents that went over was a forensic artist who uh, works with a, an alleged victim and, and does a pretty good interview and as well as doing the, the artist sketch. And when he completed his work that night, he pretty much indicated that he thought there were some problems with uh, Susan Smith's story. But publicly, at the time, investigators gave no indication that they had doubts. And they shared the police sketch with media outlets, who shared it with their audiences. But you had two separate agencies investigating from the get-go. You had the Union County Sheriff's Department. Howard Wells was the sheriff back then. So he's the, I guess you want to call the lead investigator here. He's with the Union County Sheriff's Department. SLED, State Law Enforcement Division, they are pulled into the investigation that evening because it involved possibly the kidnapping of two children. So you had law enforcement officers uh, saying, well, you know, we don't really believe her story here, but what if? We have, to, we have to play this by the book. We need to go with the story that she's giving us. She's giving us information about us, you know, what the suspect supposedly looked like. They're going to put that out there. And so for days, this sketch of a nondescript black man wearing a beanie that investigators weren't even sure existed was all over the news, juxtaposed against images of a crying white mother, telling her story again and again in interview after interview. Over the next several days, Susan Smith made several tearful appeals for the safe return of her children. She was on the Today Show. She was on Good Morning America. She was on CNN. She was all over the country. People all over the United States were hearing about Susan Smith and the story that she was telling about the alleged abduction of her children. I know right here what the truth is. Um, I can... can from some, I can see from their side uh, why they have to do the things they have to do. Uh, but the Lord and, and myself both know the truth. I did not have anything to do with the abduction of my children. So, yeah, th- there were those from the very beginning who sided with Susan Smith, who believed her story. But there were, there were a lot of people, a number of people, Uh, who said that it just didn't seem plausible that something like that would happen. And the ongoing search efforts were hitting a wall. Whatever happened, Susan's vehicle and her children had seemingly vanished. They put out a vehicle description. They put out a sketch of the so-called suspect. They searched wooded areas. Uh, They searched all across Union County to no avail. As the search dragged on for over a week... Investigators were turning their attention back to the story Susan Smith told them from the start. And that's when they caught her in a lie. She was telling them all along that she went to a traffic light at a four-way stop, and the light turned red, so she stopped. And when she stopped, she said this man appeared out of nowhere, forced her out, said he was leaving with the car, took her children. But they later determined 
someone in law enforcement went out there to that, to that traffic light, and they determined the story that she told could not have happened. The light would have only have turned red if there was another vehicle at that four-way intersection. And there was not another vehicle at the four-way, according to her story. So they had her. They told her, look, this didn't happen. We have proof this didn't happen. You need to tell us what really happened now. And it started unraveling from there. Confronted with this information, Susan Smith confessed. She confessed to making up the entire story about a black man with a gun. And she admitted to killing her own children, drowning them in a nearby lake. She basically said that she went to John D. Long Lake to kill herself, that she was depressed, unhappy. So she drove to the boat ramp at John D. Long Lake to end her life. But for whatever reason, she snapped and she just put the car in neutral and let it roll down the boat ramp into John D. Long Lake with Michael and Alex strapped inside in their car seats in that vehicle. And it slowly submerged, filled up with water, drowning the two little boys. It was then that she made her way back out to the main highway and started flagging people down, telling the story that she was telling, that someone had taken her little boys, which, again, as we know, was not true. As soon as Smith confessed, investigators hurried over to John D. Long Lake to begin searching for the vehicle. Law enforcement didn't waste any time. They went out to John D. Long Lake. They went to the boat ramp where she said that she let the car go into the water. They sent divers in. Initially, they were looking close to the shore. They were looking very close to the shore, thinking the vehicle would be right there. But the vehicle was a little farther out in the water. It had uh, moved somewhat in the water over the last several days. So they went out there immediately that evening. They retrieved the vehicle. They retrieved the little boys' bodies. And that night, you know, Sheriff Howard Wells meeting with the media, making the announcement that Susan Smith had been arrested and charged with the murders of Michael and Alex Smith. Susan Smith has been arrested and will be charged with two counts of murder in connection with the deaths of her children, Michael, three, and Alexander, 14 months. There were a lot of people there that uh, evening for the presser who were taken aback by the news because they firmly believed her story. They thought that what Susan Smith was telling them was the gospel, and it wasn't. The news no doubt came as a shock to many in the community, a community that was now mourning the loss of two young children, Michael and Alex Smith, kids with entire lifetimes ahead of them, whom so many had hoped for over a week would be found alive. Michael was three years old. His brother Alex was a year old. I believe he was actually 14 months old. They were best friends, according to David Smith, their father. The two boys had a strong bond together. Uh, and, and they, you know, they were the, the apple of David Smith's eyes. As, and, and they thought Susan Smith's eyes as well. They would never dream that she would do anything to, to harm these two little boys. We saw a video of these children before she was actually arrested, before she confessed. 
And then the children are just precious, just two little boys playing together, brotherly love. They seemed happy. They seemed content. They were happy with their mother, happy with their father, only, only, only to, to meet the fate that they met. That is horrible, just tragic. Susan Smith's trial would end up being scheduled for the following summer, in July of 1995. So when the trial was approaching, people were angry. People in South Carolina, the ones that fell for her story, were not happy. Uh, we spoke with a number of people in the days leading up to her trial who were hoping that Susan Smith would get the death penalty in South Carolina. There were, there were a few people here and there who said, no, she doesn't deserve the death penalty. But a large majority of people that we spoke with leading up to the trial were hoping that she would have to pay the ultimate price for her crimes, and that would be death in the electric chair or lethal injection in the state of South Carolina. J.R. Barry was there to cover the proceedings. I had covered trials before in my time here at uh, WLTX, but nothing quite like this. The media from all over the country that, that was assembled outside the Union County Courthouse. Uh, media members from the state of South Carolina, neighboring states, and all across the country. There were some, uh, from my recollection, there were a couple of uh, foreign news agencies who were there as well, just covering the events as they unfolded. As the highly anticipated trial got going, what all of the reporters were trying to figure out was who exactly was Susan Smith. That's going to depend on who you ask. Uh, the defense attorneys said that basically she had a troubled childhood, she suffered from depression. She had a personality disorder. Uh, I spoke with Susan Smith's mother many years ago. She refused to do an on-camera interview, but she didn't have anything bad to say about Susan Smith. She didn't know why her daughter did what she did. Uh, they had questions as well. But uh, during the course of the trial, you're hearing that uh, she had this troubled childhood. She had issues with family members suffered from depression, so on and so forth. But family members really gave no indication that that was the case prior to what happened on October 25th of 1994. And of course, the other big question at the center of the trial was why. Neither side denied that Susan Smith had killed her children, but the defense and the prosecution sought to convince the jury of two very different explanations as to why she killed her children. Well, I mean, the defense presented a few witnesses trying to show that Susan Smith had a troubled childhood. She was depressed and she had family issues growing up. Not the best family situation. So we were hearing a lot of that. Uh, we heard from the prosecution finally on a motive that uh, she wanted this relationship with this businessman, this wealthy businessman in Union County. He didn't want children. And so that was her motive for killing the children and putting their bodies in John D. Long Lake so she could have this relationship. According to an AP article from 1995, the defense argued that Smith was attempting to commit suicide and that things went horribly wrong, while the prosecution made the case that Smith killed her kids to eliminate an obstacle after this man with whom she was having an extramarital affair had called things off. In the end, the jury sided with the prosecution. After the verdict came down, after she was found guilty of the murders 
of her two little boys. Someone came out on the courthouse steps and made the announcement. It had been pouring rain. It was raining hard. As the announcement was made that she was found guilty of killing Michael and Alex Smith, within five minutes, that rain turned into no rain, and this bright rainbow was over the sky outside the Union County Courthouse. A lot of people were like, wow, you know, the uh, verdict comes in, she's guilty, and here's this big rainbow. Fitting, some people said, that these little boys got justice. The only question left was whether Smith would receive a sentence of life in prison or death. And as it turns out, that jury decided to give her life in prison. But a sentence of life in prison doesn't always mean life in prison. So Susan Smith was sentenced to life in prison in the state of South Carolina. But at the time that sentence was passed in South Carolina, she could still be eligible for parole after serving 30 years. So Susan Smith will be eligible for parole in November of 2024. Now, has she been a model prisoner? No, she hasn't. She was initially uh, housed at the Graham Correctional Facility here in Columbia. But during her time at Graham Correctional, she was having sex with jail guards. She had sex with two jail guards. Uh, So she got in trouble there. So she was then sent to Leith Correctional in Greenwood County. And that's where she's been ever since she got in trouble at Graham Correctional. From my understanding, I believe she just turned 50 years old. I believe she just turned 50 and she'll be 53 when she is eligible for parole. Whether that happens or not, I don't know. Over the years, J.R. Berry says he's tried to get in touch with Susan Smith to try to ask her some questions directly. I know that there were a lot of reporters, including myself, trying to get one-on-one interviews with Susan Smith. I was conducting a jailhouse interview with another mom who killed her stepson here in Richland County, South Carolina. I was conducting that jailhouse interview with this other person when Susan Smith appears. She's got a mop in her hand, She's hamming it up for the camera. Uh, We're getting pictures of her uh, just basically wanting attention, I suppose. I'm not real sure. But she was disrupting my interview with this other mother who had killed her stepson. And all the while, I had been trying to get an interview with Susan Smith, but she would not agree to it. Shortly after the shenanigans of that day, The South Carolina Corrections Department issues a statement saying there would be no more jailhouse interviews in the state of South Carolina. And we haven't had any jailhouse interviews in the state of South Carolina since that happened that day. Uh, was, Was the reason because of what happened with Susan Smith? I can't say for sure. But I know that the interview I had with this other woman who killed her child was the last jailhouse interview that the state granted of any prisoner. So if you're going to communicate with Susan Smith, you've got to send her a letter, or she's got to send you a letter. 
In 2015, Susan Smith responded to a letter sent by a reporter with local newspaper, The State. It has been 20 years since Susan Smith was convicted of killing her two young sons. She is speaking out from her jail cell in a letter she says she loved three-year-old Michael and 14-month-old Alex and never planned to kill them and instead intended to end her own life. By the time her parole hearing rolls around in 2024, Susan Smith will have been behind bars for 30 years. And we'll learn if she's going to stay there. You know, I'm thinking, will she get parole? This, as you know, was a high-profile case, not only in South Carolina, but at the time in the United States. Uh, 30 years, she will have served 30 years for the murders of her two little boys. Is that enough time? Is that justice in the case? Has she made changes to her life? Does she resent doing what she's done? Is she mentally sound now? Is she no longer depressed? Would she be a danger to other people at age 53 if she makes parole? Would she be a danger to society if she gets out of jail? I don't have any answers to that. Those answers are going to be for the the powers that be in the Department of Corrections, the probation and parole department to to make. You know, but uh, right now, not a lot of attention is being paid to that. I'm sure when 2024 rolls around, a lot of people are going to be talking about it. The people who were here then when all of this happened, there'll be a lot of opinions whether or not she deserves to be released after 30 years. She caused a lot of pain. She caused a lot of heartache. She caused a lot of division in the state of South Carolina. And will will, will she be worthy and able to have parole in 2024? Only, only time will tell. For True Crime Chronicles, I'm Will Johnson here with Reed Revin. Reed, you know, the story, it does just bring up so many memories of when this all took place and her story that turned out to be a complete fabrication. And it was all just so shocking how this all unfolded. But I wanted to ask you about the reaction of community members in and around Union, South Carolina, and across the state, and really around the country. Despite suspicions that the story was all made up, police put out a sketch of a non-existent black man. Can you talk about how that resonated in the community? Yeah, I mean, to start with, I think it's probably safe to say that Susan Smith made a decision to pin the crime on someone that she probably thought she could get away with pinning it on. And I don't think it's a coincidence that she chose a black man and that, you know, she played up some harmful stereotypes to do that, whether or not she realized that's what she was doing or not. I don't think that's really the point, but Obviously, to some extent, it seems like it worked. A lot of people believed a story that that seems pretty unbelievable looking back on it. And what we heard J.R. Barry say is that law enforcement felt obligated to set their initial suspicions aside and put this sketch out there just in case she was telling the truth, just in case these kids were out there and they could get to them. But at the same time, you do have to factor in how much harm is caused by putting that image out there without any real identifying details, essentially telling the community, hey, there's a kidnapper out there, he's black, he might be wearing a hat, and not much else. And I was looking back, the Washington Post reported that police acknowledged that at least half a dozen black men were detained during the investigation. Post reporters also talked to black residents of Union, South Carolina, which was about a third black at the time. 
And some said they felt hostility and tension from white residents during the investigation. And as one resident put it, quote, Susan Smith just played to the stereotype of blacks as criminals, and a lot of people around here fell for it. Reed, I also wanted to ask you about the husband you mentioned, David Smith, who wasn't involved in what happened. But can you tell us a little more about what his life has looked like since this all happened? Yeah, we should make that clear. And it's her her ex-husband now, David Smith, uh, was found to have not been a part of this plan whatsoever. He was tricked by Susan Smith along with everyone else. And he actually testified during the sentencing phase of the trial and coverage from the Washington Post at the time depicts just an incredibly emotional day in court. David showed the jury photos of the two children and it apparently moved some of the jurors to tears. And then he spent two hours up on the stand talking about his marriage, how he defended his wife during those nine days before she confessed. And then ultimately he testified about what Susan stole from him. And he said that he actually learned about her confession from the news and said, quote, all my hopes, all my dreams, everything I had planned for the rest of my life came to an end that day. Now, J.R. Barry told me that David Smith has been understandably quiet about the case in in some more recent years, but that uh, he, he did know that David has been remarried and that he's had children since all this happened. Reed, my understanding is not long after this all took place, there was a, another tragedy associated with that boat ramp where Susan Smith drove into the water. Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, as if this lake weren't already the site of enough tragedy, J.R. Barry told me about another tragedy that happened not long after the trial. They put up a memorial at the site for the two children and people would come and visit and, and leave flowers and things like that. And uh, what happened is is a group of people drove out to that boat ramp and they parked in front of the memorial. And it's it's not clear what exactly happened, but the car ended up rolling into the lake and seven people, including four children, drowned. And there was nothing intentional about what happened there. The car was in park when it was found, but just a, a horrific tragedy. And so after that, they ended up moving the memorial further away from the lake. So there is still a place where people can come and pay their respects to Michael and Alex Smith. All right, Reed, thanks for bringing us the story this week. And thanks, of course, to J.R. Barry at WLTX for his remembrances of of how this all happened and his coverage of of this event. I want to remind our listeners, we have a daily show, right, Reed? That's right. The two of us also co-host The Daily Crime. You can find it wherever you listen to True Crime Chronicles. Just search for The Daily Crime. And we'll be back next week with a new case and a new story.